Well, today's sermon is called The Blood That Cries Out from the Ground, and it's on race, injustice, and the gospel of Jesus. One of the best ways to repent and make a lasting change is to take an honest look into your family history. You'll find things that inspire you, and you'll find things that sober you. Here are two stories that, in my own reflection, I found uh, in my own personal history. One story is the story of my great-grandfather, who was in Argentina about 80 years ago. He preached an open-air message right outside of Buenos Aires, Argentina, where he was a missionary. He was preaching in Spanish, a language that he learned. Um, this is his second language, and he learned that of love for the people of Argentina, and he was preaching an open-air message. And there was a barkeep not, uh, not far away that heard the gospel message, just a simple gospel message that Christ died for your sins and that he offered to give you his life and live his life through you. And as a result of hearing the gospel message through my great-grandfather, the barkeep became a Christian. Then he began evangelizing his patrons, which quickly sent him out of business. Uh, the bar got turned into a church, and then the church eventually thrived, and to this day is like one of the largest churches in the area. Stories like that inspire me. Um, but not long after that event, Across the Atlantic Ocean, one of my great uncles in Corsica got wrapped up in the Corsican Mafia. And he and his brother found themselves in Paris uh, right before World War II. And they became Nazi collaborators when it was convenient to do so. And they used their power to extort a Jewish winemaker because they could. They took his money, they took his wine, and then my great-grandfather, or not my great-grand, my great-uncle, Joseph Damiani, killed this Jewish winemaker in cold blood. He was convicted after the war. He was sent to prison. He was given a life sentence. He was actually given a death sentence. And uh, then he was, after 11 years, released from prison. After he was released from prison, he wrote a novel um, under a pseudonym. The novel did very well. So he wrote more novels, and then he started making movies. Um, and under a pseudonym, he became a celebrated filmmaker in France. No one knew who he really was until in 1993, two Swiss newspapers revealed that the great Jose Giovanni was actually the Nazi collaborator, Joseph Damiani. And yet he was unrepentant all the way to his death. And a story like that is really sobering for me. Sometimes our family history is glorious and it inspires us. And sometimes our family history is grievous uh, and it convicts us. Either way, we need to know it if there's going to be deep change um, or we might repeat it. This morning, we're going to look into a scandal from our own family history as the people of God. It's an old story about violence and injustice and mercy. It's a story about blood that cries out from the ground and whether or not we will listen to the blood. Because this story, old as it is, tends to repeat itself in every generation. So turn with me now to Genesis 4 in your bulletins or in your Bibles. Genesis 4. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Okay, so here we have two brothers. We have Cain, the older brother, 
who works with plants. And then we have Abel, the younger brother, who works with animals. Sibling one and sibling two. Um, now, in most of life, sibling one and sibling two are often very, very different from one another. If you have siblings, you know this. Sibling one and sibling two are often going to be extremely different in interest, in personality, in makeup, and in God-given talents. Um, so they're both equal, and yet they're very different. Now, these brothers are different from one another, yet they're part of the same family. They came from the same mother. They were raised by the same father. They serve the same God. They share the same world. They could have been great business partners, great friends. They could have prayed together, worshiped together, served together, each using their own wealth and talents to glorify God. But that's not how it turned out. So verse three, we read this. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of, the, of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he, God, had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So already we see here a splinter in the relationship. Um, and we might sum it up like this. Abel is a sacrificial man with a soft heart toward God. Cain is a selfish man whose heart is hardened toward God. We have Abel, he's sacrificial, and he's got a soft heart. Cain is selfish and his heart is hardened. Cain kind of brings a nondescript offering to God. It says in verse three um, that from his agricultural supply, he brought an offering from the fruit of the ground. So, you know, maybe a few apples here, a couple of pomegranates, not the juiciest ones, mind you, uh, and a, maybe just like a sprinkling of dates. Here you go, God. And maybe Cain just thinks, you know what? I'm doing my part. God doesn't need these fruits. I sure need these fruits. I'm doing my religious duty here. God better accept it. Cain wants all of the benefits of being in relationship with God without any of the human sacrifice that God requires. Abel brings what we might think of as a truly sacrificial gift, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, as we read in verse four. In other words, uh, Abel brings the choicest meats from his choicest animal. And this is a symbol of just that Abel is totally devoting himself to God. He gives a sacrifice of his life that costs him dearly, and God accepts his sacrifice. He regards it. It's like God saying to Abel, well done, good and faithful servant. I've seen what you've given me and I accept it. Yet God does not say that to Cain. He doesn't commend Cain. His non-sacrifice is not accepted by God. Now at that point, Cain could have talked to his brother and been like, hey, Abel, can you teach me about being right with God? You seem to know some things about sacrificing your life. And how do you make ends meet and bring a sacrifice to God? And hey, Abel, can you teach me how you feed your family without the finest meats. Can you teach me about suffering and faith? Um, it would have taken humility for Cain to start this conversation with Abel, but he could have done it. Instead, Cain stews in his resentment. It says in verse five, Cain was very angry and his face fell. Cain is sulking. And rather than learning from his mistakes, he's willing to blame others. So the Lord strikes up a conversation with Cain. He's not against Cain. He wants Cain to be right with Abel and right with him. And he's ready to soften Cain's hard heart, as God is always ready to 
to soften the hard hearts of people. The Lord is not against him. Um, so we see God giving Cain space to process his anger. The beginning of verse six, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? I mean, it's a genuine question. Cain, he's drawing him out. God even takes notice of Cain's body language as he says, why has your face fallen? It's a loving thing to do to notice body language that's signaling discomfort and frustration. Then God provides Cain some coaching and some spiritual direction as to how to fight sin. It says in verse seven, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary toward, towards you, but you must rule over it. So God's giving Cain uh, a space to process. He's giving him a space to be known. And he's also giving him a way forward, a way of repentance. Yet Cain is so angry and so resentful and so entitled that he won't listen to sound counsel, even if it comes from the Lord God himself. So verse eight, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, this is Cain's home territory, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Instead of working out his issues with God, Cain goes to have some words with his brother. His resentment boils over into what is likely verbal abuse and harassment and shifting of blame. Abel, this is actually your fault. If you weren't standing me up like this, if you weren't shaming me like this, I wouldn't be in this situation. And when they were in the field, sin pounces and then Cain pounces and he kills his brother in cold blood. God takes regard for Cain, but Cain will not take regard for God. He won't listen to God's word for him. He won't answer God's questions and he won't honor God's image. So he snuffs God's image out in his brother. Verse nine, then the Lord said to Cain, so the Lord pursues him yet again. And he says, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Never underestimate the human capacity for defensiveness. Never underestimate the human capacity to transfer blame onto someone else. Um, in his defensiveness, um, Abel completely denies responsibility. Notice in verse 9, God speaks Abel's name after his death and asks Cain to describe the location of his brother and the condition of his brother. Where is Abel your brother? Give account, Cain. Notice that Cain will not say Abel's name or account for his whereabouts. Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Here, Cain wants to avoid responsibility. He went through great lengths to avoid God's reckoning, and he covers up his brother's body with the dirt. Now he's covering up his brother's death with lies. Is it any surprise that the most murderous of the two in the family is also the most defensive? We might translate Cain's response here to, I had no idea what happened, and it's not my fault anyways. Cain denies strenuously, but he won't reflect deeply. Cain attacks his brother, um, but he defends himself. Cain makes excuses, but he won't take responsibility. This keeps him from making repentance. This keeps him from making restitution. And yet, none of that will uh, get him off the hook. He cannot escape, ultimately, God's judgment. Verse 10, 
And the Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. The blood of Abel has been spilled. His body is stuffed into the ground right next to the bean plants. Hidden, forgotten. Everybody get over it. Let's just all move on. Let's just get on with our life. Abel has been silenced, but he has an advocate in the spilled blood. It's screaming out to God. Justice. Life has been taken. Breath has been taken. Cain has struck down your creation. Give Cain your justice. Even when people can't hear the cries of the oppressed, God hears. Abel's blood cried out from the ground until God took notice. Now, if we could hear the cries for justice from the ground beneath us, in Chicago, in America, it would become a deafening chorus. There are so many Abel's buried in our soil. George Floyd, Tamir Rice, Philandro Castile, Michael Brown, Emmett Till, Breonna Taylor, Amund Aubrey. Consider all the black and brown lives that were lynched or gunned down because people said they were only three-fifths of a person according to the Constitution. Consider all the Native American lives taken before, during, or after the Trail of Tears. Consider all the Latina and Latino lives snuffed out by organized crime. Consider the 62 million, 62 million innocents whose lives were snuffed out because uh, they didn't have a voice. They didn't have a name except for fetus or tissue. Consider that most of these examples that are just listed were legal or are legal in the eyes of the government. And consider that most of these examples were or are considered socially acceptable by by polite company, by polite society. Where is your sister? Where is your brother? I don't know. I have no idea, and it's not my fault. In so many ways, we live in a culture of Cain. Cain's bloody hands and hard heart is written into our history, it is codified into our laws, and it is perpetuated in our systems. And this is a moment, this is a moment when we are starting to hear the chorus of Abel's, the chorus of Abel's blood is crying out from the ground. Cain didn't want to hear the blood of Abel because of what it would mean for him, justice and accountability, losing his farm and becoming a wanderer. He says in verse 13, actually, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Now, this phrase in Hebrews, Hebrew has a double meaning. You can translate it, my sin can't be forgiven. My sin, my sin is too great to be forgiven. And sometimes it seems like that is true for us as well. The sin is too great to be forgiven. Sometimes people feel that way about their own personal sins. And I think this is a moment where that seems to be true for our own corporate sins, our national sins, our racial sins, that like the ledger, if you added up the ledger, the ledger is too 
read, to ever be forgiven, to ever be settled. There's too much blood. There's too much injustice. And if we try to move on too quickly to a resolution, it might just breed more injustice. So what does Cain do and what do we do? Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So before sending him away from the land, God puts a mark on Cain to protect him. The Lord gave, gave Adam and Eve some protective clothes as he sent them away from the Garden of Eden. It's this moment of merciful justice for Cain's parents. Um, and now the Lord does that for Cain. Cain's murder is condemned, but Cain himself will live. He'll be marked like his parents were marked and protected like his parents were protected. Somehow God's people will know this man, Cain, has sinned greatly, yet he belongs to God. If you kill him, God will hear his blood also. Why? Why put a mark on Cain? Why not just let Cain be buried in the ground right next to his brother? Because violence cannot solve for violence. Destruction cannot solve for destruction. In a sense, you can't kill Cain without becoming Cain. You can't blame Cain without perpetuating Cain's pattern of blaming. You can't demonize Cain without summoning Cain's demons. And you can't turn Cain into a monster without a small part of you becoming monstrous. This is still true, even in America. In the words of Martin Luther King, who himself experienced violence in our city, he says this, hate begets hate. Violence begets violence. We must meet the forces of hate with the power of love. Though violence, through violence, you may murder the hater. You may kill Cain, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. That's why God put a mark on Cain rather than putting an end to Cain. Yet he still needed to answer the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out and the blood of George Floyd cries out. Both cry out for justice. God answered the cries of their blood with his own blood. He heard all the way from heaven, from the highest throne of the highest heaven, he heard the blood crying out next to the bean plants, and he decided he would answer the blood with his own blood. And so God the Father commissioned his son to become an Abel in a world of Cain's. And the king of heaven became a Jewish young man, wrongfully convicted, brutalized, humiliated, and killed by uniformed officers keeping law and order with the religious people either silent or complicit in his death. The blood of God has been spilled out on our streets and it cries out for our forgiveness. We can be forgiven the sin of racism, whether overt or covert. We can be forgiven for hating and killing our neighbor in thought, word, and deed. 
We can be forgiven of our defensiveness, callousness, and self-righteousness. We can be forgiven forever. Anyone who wants forgiveness will receive forgiveness because the blood of Jesus is their advocate, whether they deserve it or not, and none of us deserve it. How do we receive that forgiveness? We receive the new version of the mark of Cain, which is the cross of Christ. Sealed on our foreheads at our baptism and every Ash Wednesday, it begins by asking that the blood that Jesus spilled would cover the blood that we have spilled. Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy, makes this point. The power of just mercy is that it belongs to the undeserving. And I am undeserving, and you are undeserving of just mercy. He says this, it's when mercy is least expected that it is most potent, strong enough to break the cycle of retribution and suffering. It has the power to heal. That is exactly what Jesus gave us in his cross. A just mercy with the power to heal, the power to forgive, the power to stop the cycles of hate and retribution. The people of our city long for the kind of justice that can heal. And they long for me and for you to exhibit that kind of healing justice in the sacrificial examples of our own life and our own forgiveness. Emmanuel Anglican. We've talked throughout the years about being a spiritual beacon church. The most powerful way for us to be the spiritual beacon church is for us to forgive our enemies and to be an agent of healing. When people sin against us, that we forgive, that we love, that we heal and rebuild, even when we've been part of the problem or if it's not our fault. <laughs> Jesus gives us this tangible way to make the gospel visible and personal and, and uh, tangible and visible in our city. <sighs> this may be a moment for us to do what Cain could have done, which is instead of silencing Abel, to give Abel a voice and to learn from him. Because the first way for us to learn how to love our enemies is to look to others who have already done that in our own city or in our own world. I've been riveted by John Perkins' life story that he wrote in his book, Let Justice Roll Down. John Perkins is not too much older than my parents, and yet he lived in a different universe than my parents or myself. He was a sharecropper as a young man. Um, he lived through the Jim Crow South, as well as um, the civil rights movement of the 1960s and beyond. Um, and he suffered greatly. He was brutalized by law enforcement. His brother was killed before his very eyes by law enforcement, and yet he found a way to forgive his enemy. Um, as a white Christian in majority culture, I have a lot to learn from Dr. Perkins. As I read his work, I'm learning from him how to forgive and how to sacrifice and how to have a soft heart. I'm learning from him how to stand with the powerless, hold abuses to account, all without losing your hope. And I invite you to read this with me. It's called Let Justice Roll Down by John Perkins. 
It's just one testimony among many amazing testimonies of non-majority Christians um, who have learned to be an agent of healing and to follow Jesus. I encourage you to learn from them. Give them a voice in your life if they are kind enough to lend it. It is time for us who bear the cross of Christ to wander the earth as healers rather than fugitives, to bear the mark of Christ on our foreheads and in our examples. And all of this done by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let us now walk forward in obedience as the blood cries out for our forgiveness and for the healing of our world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.